The following is a production of the Truth Exchange podcast and is made possible through the financial contributions of listeners and friends like you. If you'd like more information about this series, The State of Our Disunion, or how you can financially partner with us today, please visit us at truthexchange.com. My name is Dr. Thaddeus J. Williams. I'm going to be joining you for the next hour to discuss first things first. How do we do evangelism in the age of social justice? Now, as we dive into this crucial topic for the day, I want to kick off our time with a quote by one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, who says it better than I can. In a little essay called First and Second Things, Lewis points to this principle. He says, Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. Now, I realize that that principle will sound a little bit abstract. uh, So let me try to bring it a little further down to earth. I want you to imagine three scenarios. Scenario one, picture somebody who's going to a party and they want everyone to like them. Someone going to a party who wants universal approval. Next, I want you to picture somebody who's trying really, really hard to not be anxious. And third and finally, I want you to imagine a church that's trying really, really hard to be relevant or up with the times. Now, in each of those scenarios, let's take our party goer first. If they go to a party wanting everybody to like them, chances are they're gonna turn out obnoxious with almost nobody liking them. Take our second scenario, somebody who doesn't wanna feel anxious. They spend all their time trying not to be anxious and therefore they end up anxious. Take our third scenario, a church that's trying desperately to be light, that wants so deeply to just be relevant to the culture. There's a good chance, I would bet, that church is going to end up supremely irrelevant in its very quest to be relevant. So what we're getting at here is Lewis's principle, his first things principle. You can't get second things by putting them first, you only get second things by putting first things first. So if our party goer showed up and made genuinely caring about the people around them, his or her first thing, they'd probably end up liked without even trying to be liked. If our poor anxious soul decided instead of trying to not be anxious all day, I'm going to go out into God's creation. I'm going to pour my energy into the happiness of others. Uh, I'm going to go work out at the gym. Uh, I'm going to dive deep into scripture without even trying to not be anxious. They have a better chance of not being anxious because they're making first things first things. A church that makes reverence for God its first thing. We want to revere God by teaching his word with consistency and with clarity and without compromise. We want to worship God. We want to do what the Westminster Catechism calls us to, 
to make not only the chief end of man, but the chief end of church to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That church that spends maybe two seconds thinking about relevance because it's too fixated on being reverent for a holy God, that church will become relevant by making the first thing the first thing. And so in this lecture, I want to spell out the first thing's principle as it relates to the gospel and social justice. You know, social justice has been blowing up our news feeds. It's not only gone mainstream in the culture, but in much of the church world. And so this is something we got to get right. What is the proper relationship between the gospel and social justice? And my running thesis is going to be this, that if we make social justice our first thing, we not only lose the real first thing, that is the gospel, we lose the second thing too, meaning our social injustice will become social injustice. We won't be doing justice God's way as commanded in scripture. So that's where we're headed, just to chart the course for you in our time together. I want to start out with making the first thing the first thing. Before we get to justice or social justice, we're going to start with the gospel. What is the gospel? How do we do evangelism well in this cultural moment in the age of social justice? And here's my main argument, is that we're all already evangelists for whatever we're enjoying. So maybe there's a restaurant and you're like, they have the best bone-in ribeye, you gotta check it out. You're enjoying it, so you spontaneously share that good news with other people. There's some show you're watching, you know, you gotta watch, I don't know, Breaking Bad, you gotta watch Ozark, you gotta watch The Office. What's happening there? You're a walking billboard, a walking commercial for whatever shows you're enjoying because you want other people to get in on the enjoyment. There's this new album that just dropped. You gotta listen to you know X, Y, or Z. So that's my thesis here is that we're all already evangelists for whatever we're enjoying most. It follows from that that if we're enjoying Jesus more than anything else, we will become spontaneous evangelists, natural evangelists. It won't be contrived. It won't be forced. Sharing the good news will be more of a delight than a duty. So my advice as we seek to be good evangelists, good great commission fulfillers in our cultural moment, is we need to start on the closest mission field to us. The closest mission field to us, that is the mission field of our own hearts and the mission field of our own minds. And so as we kick off our time together today, I just want to walk you through a very simple, very memorable way to be a good evangelist to your heart first. So you find yourself enjoying so much of God that you just can't shut up about him. You become a spontaneous evangelism, evangelist in whatever situation you find yourself. And so as we dive into this, we're going to take the conversation right where we should, which is to the text of Scripture. So first, 
I want to highlight two facts about evangelism in the 21st century, and then we'll dive into how to preach the gospel well to ourselves. So this is a recent Barna study on evangelism. The Barna Research Group found that millennials feel equipped to share their faith with others. Three quarters of millennials say they'll know how to respond when someone raises questions about their faith, basically 73% or three quarters. Um, 73% also say that they're gifted at sharing their faith, uh, compared which is 66% of Gen X and a mere 59% of boomers. Now, this next stat uh, is sort of hilarious and sort of sad. Uh, 47% agree that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes of converting them. That's speaking of millennials, half, more or less, give or take, 47%, think that if you're sharing your faith with a Muslim, with a Mormon, with a Scientologist, with an atheist, with the aim towards them coming to a saving faith in Christ, that's, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> millennials are either two uh, Gen X or three times more likely relative to boomers and elders than any other generational group to believe that disagreement means judgments. This is a huge problem as we face the task of evangelism and great commission fulfilling in our day and age. The fact that millennials, and if you look at the statistics on uh, the generation just younger than them, Gen Z, sometimes it's called Gen We, you find this unquestioned dogma this unquestioned presupposition that if I disagree with somebody, maybe they don't think they're a sinner and I tell them they are a sinner. Maybe they don't believe Jesus is the only way to God and I tell them Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, not a way, a truth or a life. Then roughly half of millennials say, well, you're judging that person. You're being bigoted. You're being some kind of phobic for telling them they're wrong. And so we need to get back to the good old fashioned gospel, the best news in the universe that has changed hearts and changed cultures for the better part of 2000 years. In this cultural moment, we need to be able to articulate the truth of salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. So God and God alone gets the glory. We need to articulate that not just as my truth with the lowercase t, but as capital T truth. So with that, I want to walk you through the ABCs of the gospel, a way to get good at preaching the gospel to ourselves so that we spontaneously share it with others in this generation. So the basic premise of this is that we're all evangelists for what we enjoy most, Premise two, if we aren't preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, then we won't be enjoying much of Jesus. And so to preach the gospel to ourselves, I want to draw on one of my all-time favorite theologians, uh, the great Dutch Calvinist Herman Bovink. In his Reformed Dogmatics, he makes this statement. He says that the work of Christ is so multifaceted. I love that word. It's exactly the right word to describe the cross that it cannot be captured in a single word, nor summarized in a single formula. 
In the different books of the New Testament, therefore, the different meanings of the death of Christ are highlighted, and all of them together help to give us a deep impression and a clear sense of the riches and many-sidedness of the mediator's work. And so building off Bavink, I'm going to walk you through a way to preach the gospel to yourself that's derived directly from the scriptures. So if you look at this graphic with me, the cross, as Bavink presents it, is sort of like a diamond. It's multifaceted. It's many-sided beauty, as Bavink describes it. And so we're just going to kick off our time together taking one lap around the multifaceted diamonds that is the gospel at the cross. And so you can see if you look at this, we're going to go through the A, B, C, D, E, Fs of the gospel. So we're going to start from the city where we who were enemies can now call God friend thanks to Christ crucified, Christ crucified our A, atoner. From there, we're going to move on to the, the war zone or the battlefield where we who were once POWs, uh, prisoners of war, uh, captive to Satan, can now claim victory and freedom thanks to Christ, our B, battlefield hero. From there, we're going to move uh, from the war zone to the slave market, where we who are slaves, slaves to sin, can now say we're free thanks to Christ crucified, our C, our chain breaker. From there, we're going to move uh, to the courtroom, where we who were convicts, who were guilty, can now say we're just, thanks to Christ crucified, our D, defense attorney. Then we're going to move on to the Jewish temple, where we who are defiled can declare we're clean. We're atoned for, thanks to Christ crucified, our E, eternal priest, and then we're going to land from the dump where we who are outcasts can now call God Father, all thanks to Christ crucified, our forsaken son. So as we talk about evangelism, again, we want to start with, before we can have a meaningful conversation about impacting the culture, we need to be good evangelists to our own hearts. So let's take a lap around the diamond of the cross. So starting with A, Jesus, our atoner, the big idea here biblically is that I was hostile to God, but Jesus has made me at one with him, breaking down the wall of division, welcoming me into friendship. Where do you see this in the text of scripture? You see it vividly in Paul's letter, his second letter to Corinth, chapter five. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in this passage, we get a clear vision of a substitutionary atonement that reconciles us to God, that turns enemies into friends. 
A B in our ABCs of the gospel is Christ as our battlefield hero. And the central biblical idea here is that the forces of fear and evil held me in their oppressive grip. But Jesus, the warrior king, you know, the one promised way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, the one who would be a seed of woman. It's a male, masculine, singular. There would be a male offspring of woman who would what? Who would crush the serpent's head. So Jesus has crushed the enemy's head and claimed victory on our behalf. You see this vividly in Colossians 2. You who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. Now, Paul here, again, he's drawing on uh, imagery from the war zone, imagery from first century battlefields, where if you're a soldier in a defeated army, you would find yourself shackled, usually at the ankles, and then led on a shame march through the center of the city. Paul's drawing on that first century warfare imagery to describe the gospel, that by dying on the cross, Jesus led Satan and his minions on a shame march through the cosmos. That's the second way to preach the gospel to ourselves. A third way, moving on to the C of our ABCs of the gospel, Jesus as chain breaker. And the biblical insight here is that I was a slave to darkness selfishness and anxiety, but Jesus is my great liberator. He's purchased my freedom and cut my chains. And so this is the language of first century Roman slave markets. You see Paul appeal to this, or excuse me, John appeals to this in chapter eight of his gospel. Paul does it too in Ephesians one and elsewhere. But in John's language, John eight thirty four, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, Jesus here is talking about slavery and freedom. And he's not so much talking about the way we typically think of freedom, which is, I'm shackled by the outside, by society. I'm shackled by, say, a slave master, anything like that. He's talking about being slaved, not against your will, but by your will. Jesus is drawing that distinction here. It's what Luther would famously describe in what was his favorite of all of his theological works, bondage of the will. Not bondage against the will, but the bondage of the will. We are slaves to our own sinful desires. We are shackled by our own sinfulness. In other words, the idea of freedom as our culture tends to construe it these days is a myth. Think of the great theologian, Bob Dylan. 
Bob Dylan in one of his most famous songs off the Slow Train Coming album right after he had a born-again experience. Bob Dylan sings, you guys know the song, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? So he names all these different groups of society, all the all the fat cats and all the, the sultans and the politicians and, you know, the the big shots. And he says, you might think you're free, but... It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody, right? We're all slaves at the end of the day. And so according to New Testament theology, we can be slaves to Satan and our own sinful fallen hearts, or we can be slaves to God, which is true freedom. And that's all thanks to Christ, our chain breaker. Uh, so there's another way that you can preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. Jesus, thank you for being my atoner, my battlefield hero, my chain breaker. Well, next, the D in our acrostic is Jesus as our defense attorney. And the central idea here is that I broke the laws of an infinitely just being. But Jesus took my death sentence on himself and he now pleads the winning case for my innocence. So the central passage here, and there's a lot of them in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 2, famous passage, my little children, John writes, I'm writing these, these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I just want to zoom in for one minute on the language that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses here to describe the redemptive work of Jesus. He describes Jesus as our advocate. That's in an ESV translation, our advocate. It comes from a Greek word, Parakletos. Now, para means beside. That's what that prefix means. Kletos in first century Greek, that's your elbow. So a parakletos comes beside you at the elbow to plead your case. This was a first century word in the Roman Empire to describe your defense attorney, the one pleading your justification, the one pleading for your not guilty sentence. And so I just want you to picture that for a second based off 1 John chapter 2. When you sin, thank God you don't have to be your own defense attorney, right? You don't have to be your own parakletos. 1 John 2 tells us that Jesus is your defense attorney. He pleads your justification. He pleads your not guilty sentence. He comes beside you, he paras you at the kletos, at your elbow, he's arguing for your justification before the Father. And the good news is, he never loses a case. He never loses a case for your justification. Why? Because he's pleading on the basis of his own shed blood. That is a knockdown, drag out argument for your justification. That's a fourth way that we can be evangelists on the closest, closest mission field to us, the mission field of our own hearts. The way John Calvin puts it, 
The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. Amen? We must, above all, remember this substitution or what Luther called the great exchange, lest we tremble and remain anxious throughout life. So wherever you're at today, just remind yourself that gospel truth. You have the greatest defense attorney in the universe pleading your justification. This moves us on to the E in how to preach the gospel to ourselves, the ABCs of the atonements, the good news, Jesus as our eternal priest. The central truth here is that I was unclean, but Jesus became my spotless lamb. He serves as my priest so that I can stand confidently in the presence of divine perfection. So here the New Testament uh, isn't speaking from the social world or the battlefields or the first century slave trade, the slave market or the courtyard. Here, this description of the cross work of Jesus is coming straight from the Jewish temple. You see this in Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if that sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more shall he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so the good news, friends, is thanks to Jesus, your eternal priest, you can stand confident and clean in the presence of absolute holiness. That is 100% thanks to the work of Christ. Which leads us to a final way to share the gospel with ourselves on a daily basis becoming good evangelists to our own hearts and minds. The F and the A, B, C, D, E, F of the gospel is Jesus as the forsaken son. A central idea here is that I was left to die at the human dump, but Jesus became forsaken in my place so that I can enjoy adoption as a cherished son or daughter of God. Now, a bit of historic backdrop. Let's Look at the passage from Ephesians 1, and then I'll, I'll peel away some of the layers of um, the historical context here. So Ephesians 1, I'm just giving you a snippet of it. In the original Greek, it's 205 words before Paul just pauses to take a breath. He is so amped about the good news that he's just tripping over himself. It's the longest run-on sentence in the entire Bible. Uh, So of those 205 words, here's a snippet, starting at verse 3, Paul says, He, that's God the Father, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and unblemished before him. We're going to zoom back in on that word unblemished in a minute. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He did this according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in 
the beloved. So let's zoom in on that word unblemished for a minute. In Greek, it's the term amomos. Now to a first century Ephesian audience, and Ephesians is a circulated letter, it would have gone uh, throughout the Roman Empire, but especially in Ephesus, that word would have carried so much weight and meaning because right outside the city gates of Ephesus, you had a literal human dump where unwanted tiny image bearers of God were discarded like garbage. Now, there was a name for these unwanted image bearers. Often they were just kicked away because they were female. Uh, there's actually a letter that archaeologists have dug up from the first century Roman Empire where the husband, the patrifamilias, says, you know, I'm away on business. If the child is born before I return, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a female, discard it. It's an actual letter from the first century. And so you have all these tiny image bearers who were deemed momos in Greek, which means blemished, the blamed, the unwanted. In some of the first century literature, they're known as the uh, expositi, meaning the exposed. They're left to the exposure of the elements to die because at the end of the day, their lives aren't worth living as deemed by their lowercase f fathers. And so many of those unwanted kids would have been taken into slavery in Ephesus. That was the most common fate of the expositi of the momos. They would become lifelong slaves, often sex slaves. So their lowercase f fathers deemed them unworthy, blemished momos. And Paul comes along here with the gospel in the opening of his letter to Ephesus and says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So father, again, that's a loaded term. And Paul's saying your capital F father has given you a new name. You're no longer momos, unwanted, blemished, cast out. You are unblemished. You are blameless. You are unwanted. You, you are wanted. You are a momos. And as Paul builds on that metaphor, he says, now you've been brought into, you've been predestined to adoption as sons. We have been welcomed into the family of God. So Jesus, if you look at the book of Hebrews, he's crucified outside the city. He becomes the outcast. He's treated like garbage. Why? as our great substitute so that we can be adopted as cherished sons and daughters in the family of God. So there you have uh, a way to preach the gospel to yourself. Let me just recap that so we're all on the same page. Uh, in the words of Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, one of my favorite theologians, she says, Jesus willingly chose isolation so that you might never be alone in your hurt and sorrow. He had no real fellowship so that fellowship might be yours this moment. You will never experience isolation or abandonment or dread of being forsaken as did your Lord. Fellowship is yours and you have it because he didn't. So let's tie all that together here. And, and I want you, I'm just going to read through this and just sort of pray along with me. We're going to preach the gospel to ourselves right now. It's going to take us about 60 seconds. 
let's start by being evangelists to ourselves. Jesus, thank you for being our atoner. We were hostile to God, but Jesus, you made us at one with him, breaking down the wall of division, welcoming us into friendship. Jesus, thank you for being our battlefield hero. The forces of fear and evil held us in their oppressive grip, but Jesus, our warrior king, you crushed the enemy's head and claimed our victory. Jesus, thank you for being C, our chain breaker. We were slaves to darkness, selfishness, and anxiety, but Jesus, you're our great liberator. You purchased our freedom and you cut our chains. D, thank you, Jesus, that you're our defense attorney. We break the laws of an infinitely just being, but Jesus, you took our death sentence and you now plead the winning case for our innocence. E, thank you, Jesus, that we were unclean, we were defiled, but Jesus, you became our spotless lamb. You serve as our priest so we can stand confidently in the presence of divine perfection. And last but not least, F, Jesus, thank you for being the forsaken son on our behalf. We were left to die at the human dump, but Jesus, you became forsaken in our place so we can enjoy adoption as cherished sons and daughters of God. So I encourage all of you, that took us in the ballpark of 60 seconds to just kind of rehearse the ABCs of the cross. I encourage all of you, form a habit of evangelizing your own heart on a daily basis. Make that a habit. That's a simple six-step way to remind yourself the best news in the universe. Salvation by God's grace alone through Christ alone. So there you have it. We started with first things first. We started with the gospel. Now we're going to turn to what is the second thing, and that is justice, or what is sometimes these days deemed social justice. Now let me just say, throwing out that word combination, social injustice, uh, it's a little bit like dropping Mentos into a soda can. It's an explosive combination of words. It's a highly combustible combination of words. Some Christians hear social justice, and they think of William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect and Granville Sharp in the UK um, overthrowing the slave trade, not in spite of, but because of their deep Christian faith. Some people think of Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman uh, combating the man-stealing, as it was called, the slave trade in the U.S. Again, not in spite of, but precisely because of their faith. Some people hear the word combination of social injustice, social justice, and they think, wow, back in the first and second century with those human dumps we were just talking about, these unwanted kids, not in spite of, but precisely because our early church brothers and sisters understood the gospel, they went to the literal human dumps and took these unwanted kids and invited them into their homes as adopted, cherished sons and daughters. When some Christians hear social next to the word justice, they think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the resistance movement against the Fuhrer, against Hitler. They think of uh, Sophie Scholl and her brother Hans 
and their white rose society to confront the Third Reich for its, its heresy and its evil and its dehumanization. Some people hear the word social combined with the word justice, and they don't just think of history. They think of contemporary examples where let me just uh, list a few for you that in our day, there was a recent study done, this is going back to 2018 in the United States, found that practicing Christians outpace all other groups in providing food to the poor, in donating clothes and furniture to the poor, in praying for the poor, in giving personal time to serve the poor in their communities, and even going beyond American borders to help the poor and oppressed. Now, that's inspiring, <laughs> but as if that wasn't inspiring enough, a recent study, this was conducted by a, a non-religious research group. They looked at a dozen faith communities in and around Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they used this 54-point metric to determine what was the economic benefit that this dozen congregation had on their surrounding communities. And here's what researchers found. It's so encouraging. They found in a single year, in one 365-day cycle, a dozen congregations generated $50,577,098 worth of economic benefit to their neighborhoods. <clears throat> and again, that's all in a single year. And we can add the fact that Christian communities today excel in adoption and foster parenting, fighting human trafficking, uh, and community development. In other words, uh, when we make the first thing the first thing, when we start with the gospel as the first thing, which, which by the way, we don't have to speculate what the first thing is. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul just tells us flat out. He says, I passed on to you what was uh, the Greek says, en protois, which uh, most translations would render of first importance. So when I'm talking about the gospel as the first thing, I'm talking about the first thing according to scripture. What is the first thing? Well, Paul, Paul goes on to cite what is perhaps the most ancient creed in the early church. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was resurrected on the third day that he appeared to the 12, he appeared bodily. It's a bodily resurrection. And so scripture itself defines for us the first thing. And my point going back to C.S. Lewis at the very beginning is when you make the first thing, the first thing, the best news in the universe, sinners like us are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so God and God alone gets the glory. When we make that first thing our first thing, then justice and helping the poor and lo loving the widow and the orphan, as scripture commands, follows on the heels of that. You get the second thing too. But there's another version of social justice that you've heard some of the other speakers uh, in the conference reference. And I draw a basic distinction between social justice, A, the kind that flows from the gospel, the kind that's deeply compatible with biblical commands, not suggestions to do justice. Uh, in Jeremiah, truly execute justice, the famous passage from 
Micah 6.8, what does the Lord not suggest, but what does the Lord require of you to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? So that's what I call social justice A, the biblically compatible kind. But there's another kind of social justice that's trending that I refer to in uh, my new book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 questions Christians should ask about social justice. In this book, I talk a lot about social justice B. Social justice B is the kind of justice that's deeply incompatible with a biblical view of the world, and it's the kind of social justice that is making major inroads into the American church in the 21st century. So remember our running thesis, right, that if you make the first thing the first thing, you get the first thing and the second thing thrown in often as a bonus. But if you make some second thing your first thing, you not only lose the real first thing, the actual gospel as defined by scripture, you lose the second thing too. Social justice becomes something else entirely. It becomes injustice. And so I just want to walk you through a quick set of contrast between the kind of justice we will pursue if the gospel is our first thing, social justice A, and how justice will get twisted and distorted if we make a second thing the first thing and lose the gospel. So I'm just going to walk you through a handful of contrasts here. I'll walk you through 12 as we wind down. A first difference is that social justice A, biblical justice, it brings us to our knees before Jesus as supreme. It, it seeks a justice that begins with God first. How do we give God his due? That's the first question of all real justice. If, if justice is giving others their due, then real justice starts with the ultimate other, given the creator-creature distinction. How do we give the creator his due? That's where biblical justice starts. So you shall have no other gods before me. The first of the Ten Commandments, that's the starting point of all true justice. Social justice B, on the other hand, the kind that we need on our radars that we need to be very skeptical about and wholeheartedly reject, and social justice B, it would erase the creator-creature distinction. And it downplays the divine image in everyone. It creates these social hierarchies based on your oppressor versus oppressed status. Just like Jezebel in the Old Testament turning ancient Israel to false gods, social justice B would have Christians fall prostrate before the false god of self, I get to define my reality, before the false god of state, the government will save us, or the false god of social acceptance. We like to be liked. We need society's approval. So that's one key difference. A second difference between the kind of justice that follows from the gospel is that biblical justice brings unity by acknowledging our shared blame in Adam and our new identities in Christ. And so the key point here is that Jesus destroyed the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, making for himself what scripture calls one man. He unites people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He makes us ambassadors of reconciliation. So family and reconciliation 
not intergroup warfare, is the biblical model for Christian living. Well, social justice B is very different here. It leaves us in a state of uproar where it breaks people into these identity groups and then it tells the most damnable re-edited histories of certain groups. It makes every individual that you encounter just a mere exemplar of that damnable group. And then it blames or projects all of life's problem onto that individual and the group they represent. Now, the predictable result of this kind of, quote, social justice is tribal warfare, which I would argue is one of the worst ideas in human history with a staggering body count. So there's a second key point of contrast. The third one is that biblical justice offers us the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Those fruits of the Spirit supernaturally produced in us will mark our justice pursuits if we're doing biblical justice. Social justice B is very different. It's not marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Instead, it generates a spirit of mutual suspicion, hostility, fear, labeling, resentment, always assuming the worst of other people's motives, self-righteousness. So if we're quick to be triggered, we aren't doing justice God's way. A fourth point of contrast between the kind of justice that happens when we're doing real evangelism, preaching the actual gospel, keeping the first thing first, is that we will manifest a love that, as Paul defines it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, love that is not easily offended. Well, if you're paying attention to social justice B in this cultural moment, it encourages and inspires offendedness. A fifth difference is that a biblical approach to justice sees evil not just in systems out there where we should seek justice, right? Psalm 94 says, beware those who frame injustice by statute. There's such a thing as a sin that can be baked into a system. You know, Pharaoh's sin wasn't just individually expressed. It was systematized by enslaving Israel. Um, Darius's sin, Nebuchadnezzar's sin of idolatry wasn't just an individual sin. It was baked into the systems, the decrees to worship and pray to the gold image or worship or pray to the king. So a biblical approach to justice is going to recognize that we can, in fact, build our sins into systems. But it also acknowledges that where does all that come from? From our twisted hearts. It's our twisted hearts that make those systems unjust. So it follows from that that all the activism in the world, all the external activism, won't bring lasting justice if we downplay our need for the regenerating, love-infusing work of God in the gospel. That is very different from today's trending social justice movements, where Guilt is credited on the basis of your skin tone. Uh, we condemn people because of their group identity. And individuals have to work off their, quote, white guilt uh, by confessing their privilege and joining the social justice be mission to end all oppression as its leaders define oppression that given week. So there's five differences. Let's look at a 
let's look at a well, well another contrast there social justice b would just blame all evil on systems uh, it assumes that any disparity is damning evidence of discrimination and then it makes activism against that discrimination quote a gospel issue and it downplays our need for repentance and saving grace well another point of contrast in a biblical worldview scripture assesses everyone is guilty regardless of your social group identity just by virtue of being in adam being a human being with a pulse you're guilty this guilt can't be erased by oppressed group affiliation it can't be erased anyway but by finding our new and deepest identity in christ the second adam so rather than condemning people for ethnic or gender group identity scripture tells us you know the passage uh, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? All right. A seventh point of contrast as we wind down, a biblical approach to justice is going to confront us with the humbling reality that our self-righteousness is like filthy rags, and Christ is the only ground for our righteous standing. But when you look at today's trendy social justice vision, it actually inspires self-righteousness. It, it enables us to think, well, I'm not a bigot because I hold these particular views of social justice or I'm a member of this or that oppressed identity group. An eighth point of contrast is that a biblical approach to justice, when we keep the gospel first, the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, when we make that our first thing, we're called to love God with our whole minds. And that includes evaluating ideas based on their biblical fidelity. Are they faithful to scripture? Their truth value, are they backed by facts and evidence? And, and that would include acknowledging real oppression and listening well, but biblical justice refuses to interpret all of God's world as a mere power play of oppressors versus the oppressed. Well. And social justice B, that looks very different. Social justice B, when you dive into this literature, and it, it interprets all truth, all reason, all logic as just constructs of the oppressor class. So it encourages us to dismiss people, not on their the credibility of their ideas, but on the chromosomes of the one speaking the ideas not on the merit of the idea, but on the melanin in the skin cells of the person articulating those ideas. And that's gonna make it really hard for us to keep the greatest commandment and love God with our minds. Let me just briefly hit uh, three more points of contrast. A biblical approach to justice teaches that the creator defines our telos, our reason, our purpose. The refusal to live within that telos as defined by our creator that brings oppression to ourselves and the people around us. So let me say it like this, in a biblical view, real authenticity and freedom don't come from defining yourself and quote, following your heart, but from letting God define you and following God's heart, amen? Another point of contrast here is that in social justice B, that's very different. It would say the human telos is defined by the creature. 
So you get to make up your own ultimate meaning and purpose. It's defined by the creature and anybody who challenges your self-defined identity is by default your oppressor. Three more quick distinctions. In a biblical view for starting with the gospel first, then we, we come to envision male-female differences as in the language of scripture, very good. These distinctions can't be erased without losing something precious. So scripture highlights that the male-female sexual union within the covenant of marriage is the best, the most proper, the most life-giving context for human sexual expression. But that's not the way social justice B redefines things. On social justice B, it would see such, quote, heteronormative sexual and gender distinctions as oppressive and then seek to liberate all forms of sexual behavior and gender expression from what are called such, quote, cisgender constructs. So you see, we really are dealing with two completely incompatible worldviews here, not two incompatible political visions, but two incompatible worldviews, as my friend Peter Jones is fond of saying, we're dealing with oneism and twoism. Twoist justice that acknowledges the creator-creature distinction is very different from oneist, quote, social justice. Another difference is that what we could call twoist justice or social justice A accepts the full humanity and worth of unborn image bearers of God. And it calls us to love and protect women and their offspring who are exploited and terminated by a greedy abortion industry. But if you cross that threshold into social justice B, it celebrates abortion as an expression of female liberation from patriarchal oppression and excludes the preborn from its circle of justice. There's just a night and day contrast for you. And again, with each of these social justice B features that I'm highlighting, this is what's happening in the church when we don't make the first thing the first thing. When we make social justice the first thing, we not only lose the gospel, but social justice becomes social injustice in these ways. A 12th and final contrast is that in a biblical view of justice, we celebrate family and we uphold the rhythms of self-giving within family as a beautiful and God-ordained signpost of Jesus and his relationship to the church. But if you look at social justice, B, it does the opposite. It interprets the nuclear family as just an unjust patriarchal system of oppression, a construct that must be abolished. So I want to close with just a final question here, which is how do we engage, how do we do evangelism in this cultural moment where many of our brothers and sisters are falling for a false gospel of social justice? I want to leave you uh, with the closing words of one of my good friends and mentors, uh, he wrote the foreword to my book. Uh, he's the living civil rights legend, John Perkins. He says it better than I can, so we'll close with his words. John Perkins says this. He says, as we seek justice, he's, you know, he's been doing this for 60 years, and he's passing on four nuggets of wisdom to the next generation of gospel-preaching justice seekers. He says, first start with God. 
If we don't start with him first, then whatever we're seeking, says John Perkins, it ain't justice. Second, be one in Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, black, white, brown, rich and poor, we are family. So if we give a foothold to any kind of tribalism that could tear down that unity, then we aren't bringing God's justice. A third nugget of wisdom from John Perkins, preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus's incarnation, his perfect life, his death as our substitute, his triumph over sin and death is good news for everyone. If we replace the gospel with this or that man-made political agenda, then we ain't doing biblical justice. And fourth and finally, says Perkins, teach the truth. Without truth, there can be no justice. And what is the ultimate standard of truth, according to Perkins? It's not our feelings. It's not popular opinion. It's not what presidents or politicians say. God's word is the standard of truth. Amen? So if we're trying harder to align with the rising opinions of our day than with the Bible, then we ain't doing real justice. So that's my encouragement to all of you today. Keep the first thing the first thing. Scripture's first thing, en protois, I pass on to you what is of first importance, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we do that, and keep the first thing the first thing, may justice roll down like waters. God bless you guys. I'll see you uh, for future conversations in this conference. God bless you.